Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> when they clap before you speak, you get credit for having been awesome, whether or not you actually were. So that's a, that's a big deal. Hi, guys. If you don't know me, I'm Steve Risky. I've gotten a chance to speak here once or twice, and I've just thoroughly enjoyed getting to come out. I actually attend over at Brookside, over on campus, and I'm an elder there. Um, we have younger elders because we haven't been around very long. You don't, have to, you don't have to be very old to be elder at Brookside, really. And also, I do some, uh, some work for them as a, as a care pastor and a counseling pastor. And, uh, but I'm thrilled to get to do this because they don't need me to speak very much. So when someone wants me to teach about the things I've learned about God, this is, this is like recess for me, really. So thanks for having me. And uh, by way of getting us started, I wanted to work with sort of a, a generic path that I've built in my head of what it's like to follow Jesus. And, and, and it works from the, from the Gospels. Uh, I, I, like many Christians, really came to know Christ uh, through the church. I grew up in the church. But I got to know Christ in the Scripture by, by reading the epistles, by reading Romans and Philippians. And, and one of the first books I ever studied, like studied, study. when you get to college and you find out you can study the Bible, was Ephesians and, and the amazing things that God taught me there. But in recent years of my life, I've been drawn to the Gospels. These, these stories where... I had learned them something like pearls on a string. So you obligatorily start with, with Jesus' birth, or at least half the Gospels do, and, then, and of course the, the cross and the resurrection is going to be the end. It'd be weird if it wasn't. But then the rest of Jesus' life was taught to me something like pearls on a string. Like, oh, Jesus did this cool thing, and oh, some other cool thing Jesus did, and ooh, a miracle. Let's throw a miracle. As though there were no rhyme or reason to, to why Matthew or Mark or Luke put... And even John put these, put these stories all together, and, and I began to see that he was calling us to a purpose. And then about 15 years ago, someone put Dallas Willard's Divine Conspiracy in my hands. And, and I had this love-hate relationship with Dallas Willard because he's so stinking right, and yet he was utterly challenging the way I saw Christ. So there were times I would literally just shut the book, put it down, and walk away. And I wouldn't come back to it for a week because I was so mad at something he had just said because it was violating this sort of construct that I had built, but he was building a new one. And, uh, and I have a personal rule that uh, I tend to read dead authors. I believe that if, if, the, if the author's work has enough staying power that it mattered in the 40s or the 50s and matters today, then it's probably eternally mattering. Whereas some of today's authors seem really cool and then 10 years later we're like, I don't, even, I don't even know why we were reading that. And it probably just was for the day. But the good news is Dallas Willard's dead. And not a lot of us see good news in that. But A, he's with the Lord, so it's not too big a deal. And B, now that he's dead, he could be my favorite author. So a little fun for you. But here's this path I have. Working from Jesus' life, and, and Dallas Willard really informed a lot of this, and so I'll quote him a little bit. So uh, I have the control. Here we go. What am I pointing at? Oh, come on. You want to work with me? All right. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. The, I, I may not be that old, but technology and I are not. Okay. So here we go. Uh, beginning here, and I'll just go back to step one. Surrendering allegiances to all kingdoms. I have been deeply challenged through all of my Christian life at how many allegiances I hold over the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's the United States of America. Sometimes it's been political allegiances. Sometimes it's been to my family. Sometimes it's been to my lusts. Sometimes it's been to sins. Sometimes it does all these things that cry out and say, surely I'm the important thing. 
But to follow Jesus, you have to recognize that he said to people things like, you know, the guy who came up to him and said, Jesus, I want to follow you. I just got to go bury my father first. And they're like, Jesus, I want to follow you. I just got to to go sell something first. And Jesus is like, nah, go ahead and do that or follow me, but you got to choose. You know, Jesus, I don't know if I can make it to church on a snowy day. You guys are the follow. No, that one's one's out out of line, out of line, completely out of line. But surrendering all allegiances. And Jesus in the Gospels is continually asking us to. Dividing home, saying, hey, I got to be the thing. Number two, abiding in his power. Tim spent uh, the last couple weeks really helping us learn to abide with Jesus. But if you think in the gospel narrative, that's actually traipsing around with Jesus, walking dusty roads, and learning to live with him. Uh, Number three, but because Tim put work into that, I don't want to put a ton there. Following his ways. This was the empty case for me. Here, I'm going to go forward. Look at number four. Following him where he goes, that made sense to me in my Protestant work ethic Christianity that we've got to do stuff for Jesus. We've got to evangelism people, and we've got to give, and we've got to do stuff, and we've got to build ministries, and we've got to do, we've got to do, we've got to do. And I'm built for action. Even without caffeine in my veins, I am high strung, and I like doing. It fits me well. But this one here, following his ways, actually learning to act like him has become incredibly challenging to me. And, and in recent years, learning to try out his ways has been the thing that has utterly rocked my life. The thing that has made me really come to love him in ways that I hadn't seen before. But not only him, but come to love my wife and my family, come to love my extended family, which can sometimes be challenging. I know no one else has that problem, but sometimes I do. And sometimes I have to learn to love people, and sometimes I have to learn to forgive people who won't say they're sorry. I have to bear suffering. I've had to learn to deal with the fact that God's not going to just drop a winning lotto ticket in my lap and all my needs will be met all of a sudden. And I've had to really follow him. Incredibly challenging. And this idea, spiritual disciplines, fits in that spot. And one last caveat before I go on. They're not discrete steps. It's not as though you can't go to number two unless you've gone to number one. Quite often, people try to start at number four. But why I wanted to order them this way is, I want you to think about how often our ministry has hurt others because it was not filled with the Spirit. How often our attempts to do things for the Lord have actually fallen flat on their face because we haven't learned to act like Him. How often we've begun with great joy, but when the dry season came, we turned to other idols and other hopes because, hey, if he's not going to reign and and give me the the great days every day, then surely I can't follow him. So I want to put thought in this idea for the next couple weeks. I'm going to speak this week and next, and I want to start this week with a spiritual discipline of fasting, but a few more ideas on spiritual disciplines, and I'm glad that uh, Terrence didn't start quoting Dallas Willard and take my whole sermon, but uh, this quote here, incredibly challenging to me, says this, does not planning to follow him really differ before God and humanity from planning not to follow him? In the paragraphs before that, he had set it up something like this where he said, Supposing I said to you one day, I have decided I'm never going to sin anymore. You might give me kind of a a sympathetic smile, a pat on the head like, good luck with that, Steve. See how that goes. But supposing I said it backward, I've decided that I'm not going to bother not trying to sin anymore. 
I think you'd feel a little disappointed, a little sad. Like you'd hope that I would actually not want to destroy the people around me. And our Christianity's caught in there a lot, isn't it? The part of me that wants not to sin, but also wants to say something like, but I know I am. And then the part of me that says, I know I shouldn't sin. And what do we do with this? But I want to push sinning aside and actually use the construct he says, following him. Because I really accidentally learned a Christianity that wants something like, I believe in Jesus. He saves me from all of my sin. There's nothing I can do. We just sang we're saved by grace. There's nothing I can do to earn it. There's nothing I can do to make God want to love me more. There's nothing I can do to make God love me. I am completely a debtor to grace. And yet, he beckons me to follow him. And there's something in my Christianity, there's a place where he actually does leave the choice to me. And we want to be careful, and so I want to, uh, this is from a further from the same, actually this is from a, uh, an interview that he gave. The last one was actually from the book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. Which, by the way, if, if these ideas that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks interest you, Dallas Willard's The Spirit of the Disciplines. Ooh, just amazing. But in this uh, interview, Dallas said, I talk a lot about the value of spiritual disciplines, but there's a danger in using them as if they would help us earn our salvation. So I'm going to talk about fasting today and think about how often people through time have fasted or or have prayed or have done things hoping that God would go, oh, (laughs) you're extra spiritual now. Okay, I have to. Well, you, I mean, you've done the work, so I guess I have to give you the reward. There is no possible way to earn with God. And he says this, it's crucial to realize that grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Earning is an attitude, but effort is an action. Grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. A heart posture that in any way, and by the way, this earning heart posture, if you pay attention to your heart, I guarantee you the seed of it is still in you because you still have pride and you still are working against your flesh just like the rest of us. But pay attention to it. Pay attention to the prayer that begins, that begins by searching your heart to check on your recent sin adherence. I'm doing pretty good with my sin life, Lord. So now I'm confident that when I pray, you kind of owe me a little bit, God. And I don't say those words. My theology would preclude me from saying those words, but it would not preclude my heart from believing them. Do you understand what I mean? So as we go forward with the spiritual disciplines, I want to be very careful to separate them from action. And so here's the construct I want to use. I want you to imagine that in town there is a Spanish teacher. That's right, a Spanish teacher. And routinely throughout the year, the Spanish teacher gives the most amazing parties. Everybody who goes to the parties loves them. They are really the legend of town. And, you know, in our mythical setup, the Spanish teacher's parties are the thing. But the problem is you have to speak Spanish to be able to enjoy them. So what the Spanish teacher did is says, everybody who gets an A in my class can come to my parties. And what happened is people would work diligently to get an A, but you might recall from education, some people who get A's didn't really learn it. And some people who actually learned it didn't really get A's. But the harder the teacher worked because he really wanted them to enjoy these parties, he realized he needed to raise the bar. Because to really enjoy these parties, you have to speak Spanish. And soon, nobody in the class got an A. And nobody came to the parties. And the teacher said, well, I want them to enjoy this party. And he comes to class one day and he says, I've decided that grades are stupid. 
All of you have an A. It's free. If you want it, you've got an A. Well, if you remember from school, if your teacher would have walked in and said everybody gets an A, guess what was not going to start happening? Learning, right? Most of the people in class, woo, I've got an A. Who needs Spanish? And so all these people who now had an A in the class started attending the Spanish parties and found them worthless. Found the parties a waste of time. Let's go to this party. The parties are kind of dumb, they began to believe. They were given full credit to the parties, full admission. There was nothing to preclude them from the party except they did not enjoy it. Except the ones who actually learned Spanish. This is what the law did. This is God who wants us to speak heavenish. If you can learn to speak heavenish and act heavenish, believe me, the heaven party is awesome. Only there's a problem. In our brokenness, we, we lost our ability to speak heavenish. And the law was like getting an A. If you can get an A in the law, you can go to heaven and enjoy heaven, except we were all failing the test, right? And Jesus, through his grace, fully gives you an A. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to make him want to give it. It's given freely by grace through faith. But I'm noticing as I look across Christianity in my church, and if I knew you guys, we're not enjoying it. It's not fun. The gospel is not good news, except for the sort of this, well, at least I don't go to hell. But Jesus promised that it would be life abundantly. Jesus promised that as we step into this gospel, as we learn to speak heavenish with him, that it is going to cause us to have the best life. And even more so, when I see people begin to try it out, they're often thinking it's a curse. You know, I've heard, uh, I've heard Tim speak about it, and he calls forgiveness the F word. When people have gone through this brokenness, and what's the first stage to healing? Tim's like, ultimately, it's going to come down to the F word, forgiveness. And he's right. But to those who've been hurt, forgiveness looks like a curse. To those who've been hurt, heaven's party says, try forgiveness, it'll be great. And they walk into it and go, this is a curse, I hate this. I'll talk more about this next week. So if we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to examine our view of him. So I've got two of them. First one's this one. This is a truism, by the way. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. In five words, true. But we can hide a clever deceit in here. Because it really might say something like, I'm not perfect, I'm never going to be. The fact is, Christianity doesn't offer me anything except forgiven. My wife is a, a labor and delivery nurse over here at the hospital, and she mourns routinely the fact that many of the women she works with claim to be Christians. Some of them even go to church, but it's very disappointing to her to find that this, this belief they have is not in any way infecting their life. Ah, I'm just forgiven. What a bummer. They've been given the A. They've been invited to the party, and they're not enjoying it. But if we look at Jesus as the perfect king, the one who's done it all, the one who is so far beyond us, the one who, who is, who's the God-man, we might accidentally begin to say, therefore, why should I try to act like him? Who can? Who should? It might even seem a little blasphemous. Notice me backing away from Jesus like, I can't try to act like Jesus. He's God. If I try to do that, that might be a, a secret blasphemy. But what about, oh, what about this one? No peeking. Scripture yet. What about when Hebrews calls him the author and perfecter of our faith? The one who went and tried it on and spoke heavenish perfectly. 
who lived out the party as eloquently as it could, all the way to the cross, and upended history. What about if we look at him that way and not say something like, I am Jesus, I've become the savior to someone else, but he's figured it out. We're all running around like rats in a cage trying to figure this thing out. And Jesus says, I already figured it out. I can teach you how to live life if you're interested. And this is what spiritual disciplines are. And so today I want to invite you to follow me to actually one of the first ones listed that Jesus did. And here's the, here's the setup. Uh, the halcyon day. Good stories begin with a day when all was right with the world. For you Lord of the Rings fans, Bilbo's party and you got the party tree and everyone's having fun and you got the fireworks. And when my kids would want to watch Lord of the Rings but they weren't old enough yet, I would just play them the party scene. They'd love it, fireworks and you got Gandalf walking around and then it comes into the scene, clip, that's it. All right, good night kids, off to go to bed. And because the halcyon day is the day when all is right. When we read the Bible, Eden is the halcyon day, the day when all is right. And in Jesus' story, in Matthew chapter 3, there's the day he gets baptized. Read this. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. These are the good days. Maybe you've experienced those days with God, the days where it felt like from, from the beginning of your soul all the way to the bottom that everything was right with God and the joy of the Holy Spirit had filled you. Maybe you actually felt the incoming of the Holy Spirit in a tangible way. And I know that in a church like this, you guys uh, have experienced these. I know what the 70s were like. I also went to a charismatic church in the 70s, and I remember these stories, and I remember them in my own life. There's the day where all is right with God, and it feels good. And here's Jesus in the water, Holy Spirit descending, God being like, bling. That's a good day to be Jesus. And if we're not careful, we'll think the point is to stay here. That if, if Jesus leaves the river and the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the bird leaves and the, the voice stops speaking from heaven, Jesus might have done something wrong. But look what it says here. It says, beginning in chapter 4, then Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness and our hearts might be like, no, no, that's the wrong direction, God. You're taking me away from your presence. This isn't how it's supposed to be. Into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You want to follow Jesus? I promise there will be wildernesses. I promise there will be deserts. And when we, when we dig a little bit into this passage, you're going to see why they must be. So let's look what it happens here. It says, the tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. <clears throat> I have a memory of hearing this story in first grade in Mrs. Teske's class at Willow Hill Christian School. And uh, I thought it was about bread. I thought the story that was going on here is that the, the tempter was coming and saying, you should eat bread. But you might have noticed it's, it's not a sin to eat bread. This is Satan, the, the everlasting tempter. The, the, the everlasting, that sounds like it comes from the past, but he's going to do this for a while. And, and here's the one who knows that he's facing down his greatest foe, and we are coming to the arch temptation, the greatest one of all time, and he's got to figure out how to trip Jesus up. Does he ask him to steal? Does he ask him to fornicate? Does he ask him to, do, you know, to, to gossip about somebody or to do some sin? He comes to Jesus and says, bread. It's not a sin. 
How's this going to work? Look closer. If you are the son of God. What's really going on is Satan is coming to Jesus and knowing that he's hungry. It says he was hungry. And says, why isn't your father taking care of you? I mean, we all know he can, right? Why isn't he? Where is he? What's going on? I thought just a minute ago, just, just 40 days ago, he was saying how much he loved you when you were in the water. And now you're hungry and thirsty. And he's not here. What's at issue is, if you are the son of God, if you are a child of God, if you are loved by God, he challenges the fundamental nature of his relationship with God and then says, why don't you just take care of this yourself? And this bit that Jesus quotes is really telling. You may have learned that it's really important to recognize that when Jesus was tempted, he quoted scripture. I highly recommend that application, but I want you to dig a little deeper because the passage Jesus quotes is from Deuteronomy. And the Deuteronomy passage is actually at the end of Israel's 40 years in the desert when Moses is summing up what has happened and he's reminding them of their failure with bread. Saying, remember when you didn't believe that God was good in the desert, Israel? This is what Moses is saying to them. Remember when you didn't think your God would provide and you grumbled and you complained even though he had just walked you through the Red Sea? Remember that? It's not about bread. It's about having God. But the story goes back a little further, doesn't it? Because all the way back at the beginning, there's the woman and the serpent, and he's busy telling her that God can't really provide for her and she should take the fruit and do what is best for her. It turns out this is the ever, ever temptation. This is the arch temptation. Because from the beginning, the deceiver has used the question mark about whether God truly loves you. To bring you to sin. And we get hungry. We have appetites. But our appetites are incredibly challenging. We'll sum these up in a minute. So let's look at the second one. So then he takes him to the holy city. And set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him. If you are the son of God. There's that if again. Throw yourself down for it's written. He will command his angels concerning you. And on, and on their hands he'll bear you up. Lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him. Again it's written. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is fasting and he's hungry. And the enemy is bringing this idea to him. Will your God protect you? Will he care for you? We might want to put it to the test and see. And once again, the, the passage that Jesus quotes is from Deuteronomy. And once again, the Deuteronomy passage is reminding Israel of their failure in the wilderness when they tested God. When they didn't believe he would protect them. When they didn't believe they could go in and conquer these nations. When they didn't believe that he would bring them water. When he didn't believe. And once again, in the Garden of Eden, there's the setup. Is your God, is this... Is he holding out on you? Eve, 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 Eve. Think of all the good things that if you just take care of this yourself, God is holding out on. You're gonna have to take care of it for you because certainly your master can't take care of you. Oh, and if he can, apparently he won't. And a third time, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, 
all these I give you if you will fall down and worship me. But then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I'll come to this last line in a moment. If you ever had to read the brothers Karamazov, Karamazov, from Dostoevsky, there's a setup in it where the Inquisitioner from the, like the Spanish Inquisition has brought Jesus to trial. Because what, according to the, to the story, is happening here is Satan is offering Jesus a shortcut. Look, Jesus, just bow down one time, and then seriously, I will pack them up, and I will take them home. And all the work that you are going to have to do, all the things that you're going to fight for, all across, all of it, no worries, I'm gone, you can, you can just do it. All you have to do is bow down one time. Mm. Remember when Jesus was in the garden that he was sweating blood over what it was that he actually had to do. And so to have Satan offer him the chance that Satan's going to pack him up and take him home if only Jesus bows down, you have to admit, would be a pretty powerful temptation. And once again, Jesus is quoted from the Deuteronomy because Israel also tested God. The test for Israel, of course, was when uh, Moses was up on the mountain for the 40 days and well, that, that man Moses seems to be dead and he let us out here. And Aaron, why don't you make a God for us? And it's not like Aaron went and made a different God. It's a more pernicious thing that Aaron did. Aaron made the golden calf and said, this is the God who took you through the Red Sea. We're going to make up our own version of him. And doesn't all sin come down to whether I believe God can satisfy when I'm hungry? Or whether I have to take care of it myself. And in doing so, I make these little idols. Really, all sin is an act of idolatry. And all sin is, uh, perf- nearly all sin? I don't know. I'll say all sin. Is actually a, a illegitimate attempt to meet a legitimate desire. God gave you appetites. God gave you the need for food. God gave you the need to be loved and, and, and other, other appetites that he put in you to be satiated. But the question is, sitting with Eve in the garden, can I trust God and his ways to satisfy me or do I have to do it myself and I make my own little gods? But I want you to catch a little thing that Matthew does here to see the whole story. Because when God made Adam and Eve, here's God, and then he says to Adam and Eve, you are lords over this place. He gave them dominion, said take care of it. Of course, the whole point of that dominion is that they would serve God. And very specifically, he said, rule over the beasts in the fields and do all the other things. Well, pay attention to the temptation because it's one of the beasts that comes to Eve and says to her, how about you don't be under God? Meanwhile, take himself out from underneath Adam and Eve. He's turning it upside down. The creation they're supposed to rule over is now ruling over them and make it worse. They're attempting to rule over God and this is not going to work. The temptation that has always befallen us that, that blew up Israel in the desert when they were supposed to be God's people, that blew up Adam and Eve in the garden when they were supposed to be the king and queen over all of this thing that comes to you and blows up your life is always the same one. Can't, does my God love me? Can he provide and do my idols satisfy more than God? And remember the context is Jesus is fasting. When Jesus defeats the enemy, 
the greatest defeat of all time is begun in place. And it's going to finish itself at the cross. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And I do not want you guys to miss that Jesus just whooped up on the devil where Israel failed. And he whooped up on the devil where Adam and Eve failed. And he whooped up on the devil where we failed. Except for he's now saying to you, come out to the desert. It's going to be fun. No, Jesus, it's going to be hungry. It's going to be amazing when you kick the... No, Jesus, what it's really like is hungry. And to make it worse, when I'm out there, I begin to wonder, does he really love me? And I begin to look to all my idols. And Christians who are wise begin to recognize, if I don't practice finding him, how am I going to win when the devil's in my face? And that's why fasting is one of the greatest practices. I just started a porn recovery group for the college students. And their first assignment is to fast for a month. And because it's all men, I looked around and said, any of you guys vegetarians? Nope. You have to fast for meat for a month. And you could just see them all like buckled the knees like. (laughs) And for this month, they are going to sit down to depressing meal after depressing meal. Oh, good. Pasta with marinara sauce again. And they're going to find in their heart what's really there, how much they really believed that food is truly satisfying. And they're going to believe, they're going to be brought face to face with belief system after belief system that isn't idolatrous and is really questioning God's love for them. And it's going to be difficult, no doubt. But as they follow their master in the desert, they're going to find things. I want to ask you guys, I want to challenge you to begin to try out fasting. So here's, let's be real practical here for a minute. Terrence actually asked me to try and incorporate Isaiah 55 in today, and look, I did. (laughs) And so, honestly, I would love for you, if you begin to fast, start by reading this chapter. It's, it's a whole chapter where God is, is rebuking Israel for having these fake fasts where they're still oppressing people and not drawing near to God. And it's terrific to try to set your heart right. So if you decide to fast in any way, I recommend it. Secondly, for a time or for a thing, there are a number of fasts even in the Bible. Obviously, Jesus' 40-day fast is, is the arch fast because it's Jesus and, and he's staring down the devil to do it. But remember in the book of Daniel where he just eats vegetables for a while. That's sometimes called a Daniel fast. This thing that I've challenged the men to do for a whole month where they have to fast from, from meat. It's a powerful thing. It's a, it's a fast. The question is, are you choosing something that will make your heart squirm for learning what's really going on in your desire set? For having to really reckon, do I believe he's good? Or do I believe that man cannot live by bread alone? Or by fill in the blank alone? For some men, that might be a video game fast. So it doesn't even necessarily have to be food, but it's the idea that there's this desire set that I've been using to replace God, and I am going to walk him into it. I try to, uh, my children get a little bit bigger now, but with them being smaller, it was difficult for me to fast for a whole day at a time, but a one-day fast. Uh, Derek, Derek Prince and Bill Bright would work together, and they would fast a day a week. Derek Prince said he fasted a day a week for years on end, and I remember going to a fasting conference with Derek Prince and Bill Bright, and Derek Prince was like, yeah, I've kind of tallied it up. I think I've fasted for, and he like gave a number of years of his life, because if you're one out of every seven days, and you've done it for more than seven years, you're into years now, right? Sometimes people fast until dinner. 
I'm not, I'm not prescribing it to you. There's no magic formula, but what is important is what comes next. That you pay close attention to what God's doing in your heart. So just a couple things. And these are just sort of the three temptations kind of stylized into a fast. But do I trust God? During grad school, which I finished up this last year, I began abusing caffeine. I think that's fair to say abused. I was up to two and three monsters a day just to get it all done. And, and I knew I wanted to get out of my life. That's not healthy to have that much caffeine rolling through you all the time. And I was trying to taper off caffeine, but I was finding it wasn't going away. And I knew that there was a part of my soul that said, man can live on caffeine alone. And I didn't like it. So this last month, I just figured, finished off a fast from caffeine. And yes, there were headaches. And in those headaches, I had to decide, is my father good? Does he love me? Is he calling this? And the part of me is like, oh, he's not really. You know, just like the devil said to Eve, did God really say? Did God really say? Maybe just a little caffeine. I do have headaches, right? And then I kind of had to suffer the blues. You withdraw from caffeine, you're going to deal with a little depression. And sometimes it cracked me up. I knew why I was feeling sad. But I didn't care because I knew it was what he called me to. It was a fast. But it brought into, brought into question, does he love me? But by doing that, I was reminded of, do I desire this or sonship with God? And there was things that God was working on in my heart. Number two here, pay attention to how your desires control you. One of the great things, especially for those who deal with addictions, is they don't practice denying their desires everywhere, and then they wonder why, at this point of their greatest desire, most broken desire, they're continually failing. And again, I'm working with these men who have porn addictions, and they're like, you know, I'm trying to walk with God, it's going great, and then, and then I just find that, like, I keep falling down in this area, and I'm like, well, tell me more about the places where you're denying your desires and places where it's easier. Blank look. What if you practice denying your desires in safer areas like, you know, meat for a month? <laughs> Video games. People who actually practice saying, I've just said no for a time because I want to learn to desire God and find out how to deal. And they're fighting off, they're practicing warding off little desires. When the great scary desires come, they're like, oh, I know how this works. I know what that little despair feels like, that part of my heart that says, I'm never going to enjoy life again. Not big D despair, actual despair, but the kind of despair the deceiver brings that says, no, you need this. If you don't have this desire, it's going to be awful. Life will be unbearable, really. And when we fight through that despair and find out it was a deceit and a lie, we're like, oh, I can, I can, I can do this. And finally, when you fast, you will reveal idols in your life. We're trying to walk with God and we're trying to forsake all idols and they're appearing when we fast because we look for life. And we try TV, we try Netflix, we try food, we try comfort food, we try drugs and addictions and, and more illicit things and less illicit things. And, and we begin to realize there are things that we have told God, since you're not satisfying God, since you're not truly enough for me, I need these as well in order to make life work. Fasting is incredibly powerful. So I want to challenge you to reckon with God a realistic fast if you've never tried it before, I don't recommend going, I'm going to fast all week. It's going to be great. Maybe, maybe try till dinner. Or maybe try for a day. You know, if you, if you have like a, a dietary condition where, you know, you'll actually be in the hospital if you do that, try a specific dietary thing that you know you love and mi missing it from your diet, like, you know, caffeine. <clears throat> but give it a shot and see if he doesn't meet you in some really cool way this week. 
Well, I'm going to come back again next week, and I'm going, to, I'm going to pick up this notion again of what it's like to follow Christ into the desert and what he has for our life. And so thanks for listening. Let me pray for you guys, and Greg, you want to come back up?